Welcome to the Wolf Admin Podcast. Today I had an awesome discussion with Dr. Doug Morrow. Doug is not only a co-administrator in Indiana, but he's also a code head for the American Optometric Association. We discussed common pitfalls that he sees offices making when it comes to billing and coding, as well as common questions he gets as a code head. I think our discussion on medical decision making is likely the most helpful. Please enjoy our conversation, and as always, if you want to get the most current episodes, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review. But first, please support those who support us. Today's show is sponsored by iCode Education. At iCode Education, we create and host high-quality, relevant, COPE-approved online optometric CE. We offer practice management courses from billing and coding, fee assessment, and chart auditing to clinical courses that focus on topics ranging from the anterior segment to the posterior segment to myopia control and neurological disease. Additionally, we partner with associations to help them provide their members and non-members with online continuing education at their own pace, on their own schedule. This allows our associations to generate non-dues revenue and provide a valuable service for their members who are allowed to obtain hours from distance learning entities. Check us out at iCodeEducation.com. That's E-Y-E-C-O-D-E Education.com. One more time, E-Y-E-C-O-D-E Education.com. But so my, my, my goal real, really, Doug, is, is to kind of have conversations with um, people in our profession that, and specifically within Vision Source, who are doing stuff that just kind of goes under the radar. And, and we got so many of these people in Vision Source that I think we can all learn from. And I've certainly learned a ton from you. And, um, and so what I'm hoping to do is just sort of have a conversation about all the stuff that you do in general in your practice and within, you know, kind of the network of Vision Source and also kind of a bigger picture is, you know, we've got you and Jason Ortman within Vision Source that are also, uh, you know, kind of our billing gurus within the AOA as well. And so that's kind of what I wanted to, to have a conversation with you about. Okay. Um, so I guess, um, you know, when you think about your practice, what kinds of things have you noticed, um, just specifically we'll deal with your practice, that um, where where some of those expertise areas within billing and coding has really helped you um, develop your practice and modify your practice and evolve your practice over the years? Well, I think primarily just uh, becoming organized around the right coding within the office. Uh, I've all, I'm always a proponent of the doctor needs to establish the code and not mm. leave that coding up to uh, up to staff. I think it creates fewer questions and problems and fewer uh, chances for audit down the road. So we have an internal system that is a just a, a what we call a routing slip that just follows around the office, and the doctor has to at least get his or her uh, coding information on it to make sure it goes to the billing department properly. Do you think that, um, so I guess when you think about that, because I, I agree, I think the doctor understands the nuance of medical decision-making better than anybody else does. Mm-hmm. And that, in, in my mind, kind of um, is one of the things that I think doctors really undervalue their services, in my experience. 
is they, they're undervaluing the, the extent of their medical decision making in many cases. And that might be because they're leaving it up to somebody else to, to decide. What's your, been your experience on that when you're working with other practices? I do think that uh, there's a tendency, I, I think we have both ends of the scales, uh, a group of doctors that undervalue, and then we have a group of doctors that overvalue and, and, and bill way too high on the uh, 99,000 scale, level, level fours and fives, uh, and that leaves them open for audit. But I think with the new uh, CPT, uh, CMS system, uh, medical decision making is going to be really critical for doctors to understand and embrace. Can you, uh, so, so what I've in, in a lot of the work that I've done with, with, um, with guys in our area and then across the country, what I've seen is that, um, that yes, I understand that there are people that are overbilling. Um, but actually I, I wonder, uh, what, what's the percentage of, of people that you, in your experience as a, an expert coder, and kind of your role in the AOA, um, do you find are actually overbilling, or or is that skewed because you're only getting the people once they get to an audit, you know, and and they're in trouble? Yeah, I don't think it's a real high percentage, but and I think it's gotten better. There were some coding uh, gurus, teachers, uh, uh, lecturers that were really hanging their hat on uh, a complete, you know, a comprehensive history and a comprehensive exam. Uh, yeah. gets you to an established level four or five real quickly and uh, ignoring the medical decision-making. But I, I don't think it's real high. I, I don't. Uh, but I think there's there's folks out there that uh, do tend to uh, skew that way. Do you still do you agree, Doug, And um, is that for an established patient, even though it's not in the 95 or the 97 documentation guidelines, that for an established patient, you want to use medical decision-making as one of your guiding uh, love, um, kind of coding levels. Is that, is that what you would, um, advocate for as well? I advocate for that and I have for a long time. And, uh, it's interesting that it, you know, now CMS is coming around to a new system that really hangs its hat on that because you can't take a subconscientival hemorrhage and, and do the whole workup and build a level four or five. And, Right. Uh, it really you, you you can, but then you open yourself up to a, a failed audit. Well, that's the that's the wild part. So like, um, so it's interesting because, you know, I, there's a lot of guys that do a really good job in billing and coding. I think from an education standpoint, mm-hmm. um, and then there's there's the ones that sort of take the unwritten rules, uh, and and assume that since it's because because there's no writing or or no mandate in that rule. Mm-hmm. to do something one way that they they take the most liberal approach to interpreting that rule. So I think for our listeners, Doug, um, you know, I, I, I'd like you to kind of, if you can briefly, um, you know, one of the things I always teach people is for an established patient, the 95 and 97 guidelines tell us that we only have to score two of those three areas, history, right. exam, mm-hmm. medical decision-making. But I always tell them always that one of those three needs to be medical decision-making. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so you're telling me that there are people that have advocated cause I haven't, I mean, I believe you. Um, and I, I do think this is where you can get in trouble is that there are people that have advocated to do any of the three, whichever one gets you highest, even if it's history and exam. There have been those folks out there, not a lot. And that was, uh, there were a lot, there were more of them early on in, in the, 
in our teaching process, but I think there's still a few out there that will will still teach that. Um, but I think it's fewer than there used to be. Do you think that, um, you know, it just seems like, like I always think that in my practice, when if you really understand medical decision-making, uh, so so the, the idea then being is that uh, I want to step back because in teaching that way, the idea is I can do a comprehensive history uh, on every single patient and I can do a, a basically a complete examination and there would be nothing prohibiting me from doing a level five on every single patient if that's the only guidelines that I used. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, that's technically yeah. that's correct. And uh, that, 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 that's the danger zone. So I, I, I do what you, and I like what, how you teach that, that you have to have med, medical decision making as one of your, your two of your three. Uh, and that's so important, uh, Doug, I think, because, um, you know, one of the things, sorry to, sorry to cut you off, but I think one of the things that um, is important about medical decision making is when you actually look at the three areas, complexity, number of diagnosis and treatment options, and then your risk, what I think a, a ton of guys actually um, undervalue their risk. And, and we actually have a, guiding, um, a guidance from the American Academy of Ophthalmology that shows us what level of risk uh, different conditions are. Mm-hmm. Um, do you find do you find that to be helpful? That's, that is helpful, and uh, you also have to. They have to remember, you know, the number of chronic conditions that they're, which is in that guideline, number number of chronic conditions they're managing, and number of uh, medication medication changes yeah. they're making. And, and we, I think we undervalue that. We we do those things so automatically. We should be at a level three easily for most, uh, you know, follow-ups to a disease process, but sometimes we just mark it a level two. You know, it's, I'm, I'm so glad that you said that because that's the thing, you know, I know that, so we're, I'm, I'm definitely not advocating for, and I know you're not advocating for, um, uh, over, over billing and overcharging. Right. Obviously that's not what you're advocating for, but, uh, I'm so glad you said that because, you know, one of the things that sort of blows people's minds when I talk to them about risk, and we, we, we'll talk about number of diagnosis and treatment options in a second, but when I talk to them about the risk component, um, if, you, if you're prescribing an over-the-counter medication, that's automatically a low risk. That's automatically a level three risk. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not coming from Chris Wolf or Doug Morrow. That's coming from the American Academy of Ophthalmology. And if I'm prescribing a, a medication, a prescription medication, then that's automatically a level four risk, a moderate risk. Mm-hmm. And so when they see that, they're like, you know, I always ask them, how many times do you have a patient with a new condition that's conjunctivitis, right? That you prescribe Tobradex for and, um, and you code a 99213 or even 99212s. And, um, and it just blows their mind. Like they, they just don't even get to that point because what, in my experience, what I've seen, and I'd love to hear your thoughts as well is that people sort of get into this um, this feeling like, oh, that that feels like it was kind of easy for me to do, but they don't factor in the fact that that they had eight years of education, they have malpractice insurance, they have facilities that they have to pay for that um, comes into all of that risk. Right. And um, what, what are your thoughts about that? Well, they, they also don't factor in the, the, the risk they're taking in making the diagnosis and handling the case, number mm. one. And I, you know, when you look at the 99,000 codes in terms of how it's built, it, it is, it should be a bell curve. 
and then the middle of that bell curve is a 99213. So uh, yep. CMS uh, payers expect that number to be fairly high, and then the level fours and level fives fall off. And yeah, it, they'll, they'll, you know, we do this routinely in the office, and we come up with a diagnosis because it's one that we see fairly often. We think, well, that was easy, and maybe we'll just bill a level two. And and I fought and I fought, I fought myself at doing that. Um, but we have to consciously be fair to the office, fair to the profession, and uh, fair to our risk taking to uh, to be at a at a higher level. Yeah, that's so. In your experience, when you all um, when you all, what kind of things do you get from you know as a code head? What kinds of things are common that kind of come up within the questions that people ask you? Uh, or the situations that they get themselves in that um, that you think, man, I just wish people would know this stuff more. Well, one thing we there is there is confusion uh, on whether to to dilate or not to dilate. We get that that is a that is a perpetual mm. question that we get, and the CPT does not require you to dilate. Okay, the standard of mm-hmm. care requires you to dilate with your ninety two thousand codes. But CPT does not require it. It says that it is one of the tests you can do. So we get that. It's a very simple, straightforward question. And we, we get it all the time. And uh, we're, we're surprised by that. The other is uh, more, more, most commonly, we get a question, can't, what codes can we build together? Can, can we build ah. an OCT uh, you know, uh, of the retina? And can we build an OCT of optic nerve at the same time and can we take our fundus photograph <laughs> and bill all of it and you can do it all but uh, you know but you can't get paid for it all uh and so, so we we get that question a lot doug can we kind of dig into the nuance of that and kind of your recommendations is is i find that those are kind of the the same questions that i get as well on a local level and then mm-hmm. you know some of the other stuff that i do when i'm when i'm speaking and um what is your take on um, on the best way to approach that. Let's say we have a patient. So the the common question that if I'm if I'm in if I'm getting the same questions that you're getting is, okay, so I've got a patient with diabetes, and I also want to document the level of of nonproliferative diabetic retinopathy that we're seeing, and I think there might be some swelling of the macula. So I want to get an OCT to make to make sure that's not the case. Or so th- that's one. That's one. The other one is so I have a patient that has macular degeneration, and uh, it looks dry to me. So I want to get a photo of that. But also they're a glaucoma suspect. So I want to get an OCT of their optic nerve. Can I bill those the same day? What what? So I guess the question is, can I bill them the same day and have an insurance payer pay them? And if not, is there a better way to manage that in my practice? You know, uh, there's two ways to manage. The insurance payer will not pay both an OCT of the macula and a fundus photograph. So I, you know, it, it, it there's a lot of variables here, but I, you can you can uh, do them at different visits. That's the common thing that I instruct doctors to do. That if if you know you're going to be seeing that patient uh, at another at another interval, uh, t- do the two tests on different days. And, and that's that's mm-hmm. a legitimate way to do it. If you think that uh, it's something that needs to be done that day, uh, then standard of care may say that you need to do both, and then you uh, just bill the. I just tell them to bill the higher price uh, service, 
and just mm-hmm. not not build the lower prices. There are would some would it also be appropriate Oh go ahead, go ahead. You might be getting there. Go ahead. See, there are some other modifiers used and, and for a period of time the fifty nine modifier was uh, you know touted as the uh, modifier to use that says you know, allows you to do that extra test on the same day. But you know, we, we I don't advocate that because the fifty nine modifier is a uh, can be a red flag for audit. Well, and and could you also do an ABN on that same day and just let the patient know that they're probably going to be responsible for the lower code? Um, you could. I, I I think that's that could be legitimate. Uh, I don't use it that way, but that that uh, as long as they understand that one's paid and one's not, I don't see I don't really see any problem with that. You know, and, and to your point about, you know, the um, the urgency or the emergency of, of doing those tests on the same day, I think the other way to handle it would be, you know, let's say you, you have that patient that's dilated in your chair. We're talking about the diabetic for the patient who, have, who has diabetes, for example. And we could be, you know, we've already got them dilated. We want to document their... Um, their uh, level of, of diabetic retinopathy. And so we, we capture the photo. It wouldn't be inappropriate from a clinical standpoint or a, um, or a uh, kind of an urgency, I would, I would say, um, a, uh, you know, a liability standpoint to have that patient back in a day or two to make sure they don't have any macular edema, right? Even if you're, you know, there's not a retinal surgeon in town that's going to say, you know, one day to the next day is going to be a huge problem with Correct. macular edema from diabetes. Correct. So you and can that, just use it on a, on a secondary schedule. Right. And that, that really gets to the issue of uh, patient convenience, transportation, you know, can they do that? But it would be legitimate to bring it back for that reason or another, even if you had to do a, a, a pressure follow-up uh, for some reason, bring it back a, a second day or two later, and, and that's uh, very legitimate. They just can't do them same day of service. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I mean, the, the, um, I think what, I think bottom line with that is that, you know, you want to have a practice philosophy and, and those, all those things, patient convenience, um, and medical necessity and, um, and, uh, medical legal aspects all kind of come into play. And I think with those options that you've outlined, you can, you can have a practice philosophy that encompasses all of that it still provides all of those other areas, right? Medical, legal, patient convenience, and, and uh, safety for the patient as well. Right, right. And uh, make exceptions when you need to uh, to do tests same day if it's necessary. So certainly can do that. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I've seen, so the reason that I've, I've become fascinated with this, Doug, and I'm sure this kind of resonates with, and maybe, I'm not, maybe it isn't, but the reason that it's, it's become fascinating to me, and kind of my background was, um, helping doctors and students prepare for their board examinations. And one of the things that I noticed very early on over the last, when I was doing that for about seven years, was that um, we are really highly trained in the management of ocular disease. And yet we're very poorly trained in the economics and the value of managing those diseases. And so what winds up happening is our profession, by and large, gains these big, these large um, changes in in uh, our ability to treat and care for the patients that are in our chair that are in our chair. But because we 
as a profession, tend not to understand the economics of managing those diseases, we tend to revert back to the, um, you know, the, the routine care, the quote unquote routine care that we understand the economics of. So, you know, instead of a patient that complains of dry eye, we throw them artificial tears and say, come back if this bothers you enough. And what winds up happening is those patients come into my practice because I actually manage it. And, and, and the doctor that was caring for them before, um, because they didn't understand the, the, the value of that service, they just ignored it as a, as a complaint to the patient. Right. Has that been your experience too? It has. And, and I, you know, I can say I fall fault, you know, find fault in myself. In doing that, and, and need to to uh, consciously make an effort to to uh, be aware of the economics. I think optometry does tend to not understand the economics like ophthalmology does. And I think if anybody, and I have not worked in an ophthalmology practice, but uh, folks that have under know that they know how to bill and uh, mm-hmm. approach a disease process both clinically appropriately and economically to give the patient the best care. And you're exactly right. We need to offer the services like uh, you can in, in dry eye to uh, meet the patient's needs. Yeah. And I, 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 so I'm, I think that it's, um, it's really, I think a lot of times we think because we think we're, I mean, the reality is I, I think the real reason that this all comes down to it is, is the, is the scenario that I laid out for you before, but I also think it comes from the standpoint that that optometrists, by and large, we really are um, we're, we're people that want to help other people, and um, and we want to we want to be cost effective, um, and we want to take care of people. We don't want to feel, them to feel like that we're charging them too much or, or those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. I think, and I think that's legitimate. I think it really comes from a good place. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, but I actually, the more I think about it, the the challenge is that the the less that we actually understand the value of that, not only does it hurt our practices, but it really doesn't serve. We're serving our patients best if we really do dig into some of those symptoms that we may not think are significant now, but they are going to become more significant over time. Um, and, and if we understand the economics of it, it can make it more comforting for us to actually spend the time to dig into. Right. And uh, I think that's why it's so important. So I, I would agree with that. And one of the other things that we're uh, seeing from the economic perspective right now is uh, in diabetic care. And yeah. uh, BSP and the vision plans have become very strategic in attaching their uh, plan to a Medicare Advantage plan. And when a patient comes in, they've been told by their insurance agent, you get a free eye exam with this uh, with this program. And they're coming in either with a significant uh, macular degeneration or just coming in for their diabetic uh, annual fundus evaluation. And we should, as optometrists, bill that through the medical side for all the reporting reasons, the economic reasons, the medical legal reasons, uh, because we're taking a risk when we do that exam. And so often optometrists are just filling the vision plan uh, because they don't want the confrontation with the patient. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was talking to um, 
I think it was, um, I don't think it was, it was either Jeff Holofsky or it was Dave Cabin. I can't remember who, who I was talking to um, a few months back on, on the podcast. And, um, and one of the things I had never really thought about is that the tracking for a lot of these scenarios, when you're going outside of, so like if you're doing that, you might actually think you're doing the patient a favor. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what winds up happening is like things like HEDA scores are not getting triggered because there was right. never a, an examination that was getting billed to, a, to somebody who's actually reporting some of those things. Mm-hmm. And so then we're being actually, we're, we're doing the patient a favor. We're actually doing what their insurance agent was instructing them to have done. And, um, and what the patient thinks they want done, but then the insurance company, the, the actual, let's say it's Blue Cross Blue Shield or, you know, uh, any other private entity or some Medicare Advantage plan that is looking at their HEDA scores, it's not getting triggered as ever having an eye exam because that's not being reported from the vision plan back to them. That's exactly right. And, and, that's, and that's where the vision plans lead uh, the providers astray saying, well, if you do this, you get five extra dollars for doing the diabetic exam. And they don't do the, re- they don't have any reporting that they can do. They claim and they sell their plan to uh, medic to a Medicare Advantage plan because they said, well, we'll get all this tremendous care and documentation, but there's no communication between the vision plan and the medical plan. So it should be done on the medical side. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And it can be done right, a couple well, different so then- ways, Chris. I, I would say that uh, some, pa- some doctors will say, okay, we'll do the, the uh, go ahead and do the vision exam and then have them back to the medical part of the uh, diabetic exam. So it can be done at, just like with o- OCT and fundus photography. It can be done in two visits. I think that's important because there's, you know, the, I think as you, as you mentioned, you know, there's a couple ways to manage that in your practice. One is, and, it, and it's, again, I think it's a paradigm shift for a lot of, of doctors because they are in the role, they're in the mode of, well, I'm just going to see these patients back annually. If they're coming back annually, that's, that's what I want. And so they're just in the mode of, of annual, 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 annual. So the way that, you know, if we're going to ex- kind of explore the different ways that I think could work, um, that I think you're alluding to is, you know, if you get that patient in and they need a, a, a diabetes examination, then you can either do the exa- diabetes examination on that day and have them back for their routine or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever is more pressing at that point. And then there's nothing wrong with splitting up those patients. You know, so, so ideally, let's say that patient comes in and they've got macular degeneration. There's nothing wrong with splitting them up six months that you're doing their, their kind of medical evaluation. And then six months prior or six months after, you're doing their routine so they can maximize those benefits. Mm-hmm. The other way I think you could, you, you could maximize those benefits for the patient, right? Mm-hmm. So that they, they get to the, make sure that their refractions are covered and all that other kind of stuff is covered because they've already purchased that. And, um, and then you're also making sure that you're spending the time to address the disease concerns as opposed to making it an afterthought. Like I just got to get this done fast so I can check the box yeah. because I'm only getting reimbursed for a routine exam. No, yeah. it's, it's this other follow-up is not just so I can make more money. It's so I can actually spend the time it takes to address the concerns and reinforce the behaviors that the primary care doctor is trying to reinforce 
based on what we're seeing from an eye care standpoint. I think that is critical. It's not about making more money. It's about spending the time it takes to address those patients' concerns appropriately. And if the patient wants to have their, their routine stuff they, that they've already purchased, right, because they've already paid for it and they, and they think they're entitled to it, then they can still use that if they choose to. Correct. And you could flip it the other way, too, so you can address the medical uh, needs at the first visit, but you also don't want to slight their optical needs that uh, might be, you know, kind of glazed over in a in a in a medical uh, approach and do it in six months so they have the appropriate time and and uh, recommendations made for their uh, optical needs. Yeah, absolutely. That every time I have that conversation, and again, you know, the other way would be, um, you know, and I have this conversation with some patients, I'll say, well, we can, we can do it all on one day, but you'll have to pay for your refraction out of, you know, out of pocket because we can't submit it to both. There's also the, the coordination of benefits that people do in our practice. That's, that's not the way we work it. We, we try to make it as clean as possible. We try to split them up in, into separate visits so we can actually spend the time addressing both. But I think there's, in my mind, I think there's three ways that you can handle it. Um, and, uh, and I think they all work. It's just trying to figure out what works best for the practice of the patient. Exactly. Yes. What, um, so uh, what other kind of things uh, are you seeing that you get common questions on that, um, that you think it would be good for people to kind of uh, have on their radar? Uh, good question. Um, you know, we're, we're starting to get, uh, and I'm not the guru of, visual therapy, but we're starting to get uh, a number of visual therapy questions, and can we use the 97,000 codes? And, uh, how, how do we approach that? Uh, on our committee at AOA, uh, really Harvey Richmond is kind of the guru in, uh, in visual therapy, so I pass that along, but that's one area that uh, we're starting to see, see more often. And another, um, I guess, common one is uh, Dealing with uh, contact lenses and uh, yeah. you know, the, the medical necessity, and uh, you know, how do you bill that? And uh, you know, you can bill it through the medical if they meet certain criteria, or you can bill it through the vision plan. And you know, what codes do you use? And there's not a whole large group of codes for that, but we try to guide providers, you know, through using the existing CPT codes. And how to uh, how to utilize the uh, vision plans to get the medical necessity reimbursement? You know, I find that in our practice we do a lot of specialty kind of lenses, and um, if there's one really great thing about vision plans, in my experience, it's it's the it's the patient's benefits for for the patient. They save a ton of money um, if they if they have a medical necessity, and um, and so uh, the What's your sense, if we can dig a little bit deeper in that, if you feel comfortable with it, what's your sense on, let's say, um, what's your sense on the kind of codes that you would want to use for a scleral lens, for example, and the patient has no routine, um, you know, vision plan benefits for that, but they have a medical benefit. What, what is your sense on the, on the different codes that they can use um, and which ones are, are best to use or most appropriate to use? And then also you mentioned that there, there may be options where, um, you know, I've heard some people that say, well, they don't pay me enough for, for, for that, um, to, to have that service. So I'm just going to 
charge out of pocket. Is that appropriate? Yeah, I, yeah, I think uh, you know, to, to meet medical necessity with the scleral lens or any sort of keratoconus lens, uh, you know, for the medical plan, you got to be typically twenty seventy best corrected with uh, glasses or worse. 2060, 2070 in that range. And, you know, the number of patients that we fit uh, with those specialty lenses don't rise to that level. So that that really takes them out of the medical plan. And mm. in, in the vision plan, uh, you know, you've, you've got to go uh, into the specialty area, which uh, most of the vision plan will, will let you do uh, your fitting fees at 80% of usual and customary if it's a custom lens and uh, and then they you just you just charge them the appropriate fee for the lenses themselves and they take their if they take their benefit if they don't have a vision benefit which I think was your question it's got to be out of pocket and you uh, build the uh, medical plan for the uh, medical exam treatment and then yeah. uh, when they come back for follow-ups you can use the 99,000 codes with the appropriate medical diagnosis for uh, follow-up visits, and they just will have to pay for the materials out of pocket. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, uh, you know, one of the things that we've experienced is those patients that do kind of rise to the level of of medical necessity, even on their medical insurance, some of the reimbursement for um, a... Uh, fitting. I can't remember the top the the code off the top of my head, but for the the reimbursement for a a scleral lens, essentially, mm-hmm. um, has over the last couple of years has just plummeted. I mean, mm-hmm. it has plummeted from those medical payers, yeah. and it, it really is almost like uh, the patient needs it more. But when they need it more, we can submit it to their medical plan, and and then we actually get paid less, even for a more complicated fit. And that that's that's always challenging because then you. Then you have to get wrapped up in, is it a service, you know, changing the fees on the service or changing the fees on, on the materials uh, because you have to spend the time doing it. What are your thoughts on that? Well, the, typically uh, in a medical plan, I, I don't think the service will be paid. I mean, the uh, material yeah. will be paid. So, right. so right. sometimes you have to revert back to the, the old, our, our old uh, – archaic methods from you know 30 40 years ago where the value of the product and the service were wrapped up into one fee and you you put more more uh more uh, of a fee into the material to cover some of your professional fee uh if they're not if the medical is not going to pay you an appropriate amount yeah yeah and that's that's kind of um I mean, that's, that's kind of the thoughts I've had on it as well. And what about, um, have you had an experience with, um, now that, you know, I've had conversations with, um, Tom Quinn and Pam Lowe, uh, about orthokeratology and myopia control. Um, do you get any questions about that? Has that come up with any, anybody how to, how to manage that? You know, that's or not, even not orthokeratology, even atropine, you know? Yeah. yeah. And I know you, you have a, a, a big interest in that. That has not come up in our coding. You know, we we uh, manage ask the coding experts for the AOA, and that is not a typical question. Both atropine for the accommodative east for the isotrope, or CRT lenses or, or ortho, ortho lenses for uh, myopia control. Um, good, that's a good question, but uh, it, 
we're not getting that. So I, that may mean there's not a lot of that being done right now. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's probably what it means. And I also think the, the people that are doing it uh, have figured out a, a model that is out of pocket mm-hmm. um, to kind of manage those things. That's, that's the sense I get. Yes. Um, which is, I, I think that's fine. It's appropriate. I think it's, um, you know, there seems to be this push. I'm not sure if you've seen this yet in some of the, the um, journals that, that are out there, but there seems to be this push to kind of classify myopia as a disease state because of all the other potential that, um, you know, in, in, at least in our terminology, maybe not within ICD. But, um, but I'm wondering if they're not trying to push for uh, something along those lines where they, you know, I don't know. I, I, but the fact that you haven't seen it, I think, is, is what I was mainly looking for. I, I think there's a, I think it's a great, a uh, bit of research that's being done. I, I am seeing it in the journals. Uh, I think it's interesting, and I I, I, I don't uh, do that much with orthodontology. I have an associate that's going to join me this summer who has a keen interest in that, so I'm going to you know, stay tuned. I'm going to probably know a lot more about it uh, next year versus <laughs> this year. Yeah. Doug, you, you and Perry have done a, an awesome job. In my mind, I think, um, you know, I finally have my dad listening to some of these podcasts. <laughs> he, he listened to one with uh, So, you know, I, I always joke, and I, I, I told him yesterday we were in the office together, and I, I said, you know, you haven't heard it yet because you haven't listened to all the podcasts. But um, I, I joke with probably every other one, especially the people that I know know my dad, mm-hmm. that I, I would love to have him on, but I know it would, he would never be on because it's not his thing, you know? And he goes, yeah, you're right. <laughs> it's not my thing. He'd, but, rather, he'd rather be out running. But, is that what you're saying? That's right. That's right. As would I. As, yeah. you know, if I actually, um, through this cold winter, uh, as much as I like to pick people's brains and, and talk about this stuff, it's um, some of my, my normal running partners, we've been, it's been so cold in Nebraska that I haven't been able to get out. So this has sort of been my release to kind of dig deep into the top. <laughs> that's <laughs> and, uh, good. But it's therapy. You know? it's, it's therapy. It's my therapy. But, uh, but, you know, one of the things I wanted to bring up is, you know, you've known my dad for a long time. And, and um, you know, I, obviously he's, he's my largest mentor. I, I, I'm sure I don't tell him that enough. But, um, but you and, and Perry have also um, kind of, in my mind, done a, a wonderful job in, in creating a network of, of doctors that kind of get, um, and, and I look up to you both a lot because you kind of get the, the selflessness within trying to help other people grow. Mm-hmm. So what's your philosophy on that? And, and you know, we can link it back to billing and coding, but just in practice management, what are you looking or what are you seeing in, in some, of, some of these new practices that you're working with or even existing practices within Vision Source that kind of continue to come up and how are you kind of continuing to push push people in, in this kind of same direction of growth through adding new treatments and new technologies and being more accessible to our patients? You know, certainly accessibility, I uh, wrapped around the medical model and being available 24-7 has always been a standard of mine in, in my practice and it, it does help your practice grow. Uh, we try through our meetings, through the communications that Perry Push, pushes out, uh, try to introduce, and, and we, we lean on vision source, you know, uh, ideas uh, of what the new treatment modalities uh, out there, like like the dry eye uh, protocols that vision source uh, 
developed, mm-hmm. and, and we we promoted that with in a meeting. Uh, we try to bring those things to our meetings and try to get the young practitioners there to 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 uh, you know embrace those things. And, and I think in many ways, uh, it, it's I think they they do want to embrace that. The only disadvantage for them is some of that in, some of that uh, cutting edge technology requires uh, purchasing of technology instruments, which is a little more difficult for that, that uh, young, young practitioner. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think, um, go ahead. yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, you know, go ahead. No, I was going to say, you know, I, I, I'm kind of excited about um, what Mick Kling and Lori Sorensen are doing with the business of optometry I, and um, uh, with, uh, with helping us understand how to you know, I think there's this model that a lot of us have bought into over the years of, you know, cash flow and and um, good debt versus bad debt. And, you know, mixed, mixed approach is slightly different where you, you know, obviously he understands there's good and bad debt, but, but there also is a lot of other nuance to that, that you don't have to utilize debt to leverage some of these other technologies mm-hmm. if you plan for it ahead of time. It's just switching that mind, you know, that, that shifting that, that mind. Uh, mindset around, so you know I, I'm I'm really fascinated with what Mick's doing, and uh, and I think that can help some of our younger doctors see the opportunities, so that they're not, you know, uh, ten or fifteen years down the road with a, a million dollar practice or a one point five million dollar practice or a two million dollar practice, and still worried about how they're going to make payroll. Yes, yes, and and I'm fascinated with his approach too because I grew up in the old school way of, of- yeah practicing and it's it's taking it's it's taking me a while to kind of get my hands around a different paradigm because i i do leverage in my practice the technology is uh, you know is done with uh, the the bank and i and it's it's worked out well to date but i'm interested in seeing if i could lean towards Vic's uh, philosophy a little bit more yeah yeah i i mean i, I think the bottom line is that um you know, I think there's probably ways to do both, but when it comes down to it, the worst, th- I think the worst thing that can happen, and this is what Mick has, has kind of highlighted, I think, with, with what he's doing is the worst thing that can happen, I think, is to have, is this idea that, and it really resonated with me, is that you can think, well, all my problems will go away if I can just get to this level of my practice. Like, let's say you're doing $600,000. If I can just get to a million dollar a year, then all those other problems will go away. Certainly, I'll have the money to, to, to do X, Y, and Z. And I want to lose sleep about that. But I don't know if you were, were in Tampa at the Administrator Exchange when Mick, did, Mick and, and Lori did their um, yes. kind of inaugural business about country. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, it, it resonated with me because when he asked everybody goes who here loses sleep he asked something about you know how much are how much are you grossing you know in your practice a year or something like that and then you know all these hands went up or he said are you doing this are you doing this and you know everybody in the room is is well over a million dollars or most of them are and you know um a million dollars a year and then he asked you know how many of you are concerned about or lose sleep over um financial aspects of your practice and like almost every hand stayed up in yeah. the room yeah and so you got the and these are, you know, these are no slouches. I mean, these are guys that, you know, are kind of big names within our professions, not, not just within Vision Source. But these are guys that, you know, were, were um, leaders of, of, of the AOA. And, you know, I mean, they, these guys are, are rock stars in my mind, you know. 
And yet it just showed that they were still, um, you know, they're still concerned about that, you know, and, and they should be. And I'm not saying that Mixway takes no concern off of it. It just seems like um, when you flip it in that way, uh, where you know where those dollars are going to be spent before they're spent, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to spending them um, blindly, uh, or not blindly, but but sort of before you have the dollars, um, seems to make it feel more comfortable anyway. And so I, I, it was fascinating. It was, and we, we, we don't have the business uh, you know, mindset as a, as a, many of us as clinicians, uh, we want to see patients and we want to run the business, but we don't. And, and I would say I probably don't myself spend enough time on the business side doing the planning that Vic is uh, promoting. And I think it's a, it'll be great for the profession if they can roll that out into the uh, membership. Yeah. Yeah, I absolutely agree. So, um, so Perry, uh, what else is on your mind? What kind of things are you excited about? It sounds like you're bringing on a new associate next summer. Yes, and uh, what's kind of exciting for you in the new treatment paradigms? Or, you know, maybe we can, if you want to talk about what you think is going to happen with some of the uh, evening out of payment scales within 99 codes that may be coming in 2021. Or just, you know, what, what excites you um, that you're looking forward to in the next five years? Well, I, I, I really, and you, you hit on it, I'm, I'm excited to uh, investigate myopia control, which I think my new associate will have a, a, an interest in, and uh, we, we're excited to work together with him on that. Uh, so that, that's, that's number one. Number two, I think just uh, scope uh, of, of, with, with optometry excites me uh, in terms of the ability to Use uh, anterior segment lasers. Um, I, I, you know, I, I just asked somebody last night at, at a meeting, or a meeting I was at, asked, well, will I have a laser in my office? I said, well, you know, we'll have four doctors that probably can support one. And, and uh, the, I don't know the answer to that, but I, I, it excites me to think we might be doing SLTs uh, and YAGs in the office. So, I think treatment, as much as anything for me, uh, is exciting, and, and I love having younger associates who have had more recent training, like like yourself, uh, to be able to practice. Yeah, yeah, it's fun. I, I you know, I always, um, I've been in practice now long enough, and I'm sure you can reflect back uh, as well, if not better. But I've been in practice long enough now where there's been some clinical entities that I was not trained about it, trained on in school. And it blows my mind. Like, it's just so, it's so fascinating to me. Um, the one that comes to mind very clearly is Demodex. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I remember, um, you know, learning about uh, mites and, and all those kinds of things, but, but not really learning about Demodex, the difference between follicularum and brevis and how and, and like when I first I can't remember what year it was, but I had been out of school enough time where I was like, "What? This is this exists?" Mm-hmm. And um, you know, the same thing can be said about like really when I when I think about myopia control, I've kind of always paid attention to it because I really liked orthokeratology when I was in school. And I, my dad was doing it before I was you know out of school, so it was part of my practice right away. And so I always kind of had this idea that yeah, maybe it slows it down, and I think we, it probably slows it down, but the amount of evidence that has come out in the last um, three or four years 
is, and, and that that um, and the, the amount of additional evidence that's going to come out in the next three or four years that can really help guide us mm-hmm. is uh, is exciting. It is um, really exciting. Yes, I would agree, and that's going to be right at this point. The other nice thing about that business model is that's not that's not within the insurance. Um, uh, realm. So that is a uh, out-of-pocket cash, uh, you know, experience for the patient in the office, which is, which is, you know, the treatment's good for the patient, and that business type uh, model is good for the good for the practice. Yeah, yeah, and I, you know, I, um, I was talking to Cheryl Chapman. She's, uh, she's in our in our group, and she's awesome, and she's a, a huge. I mean, myopia control has been kind of her passion. Um, and she's probably in the forefront of docs in, in Nebraska that are that are really working toward this, and, um, and not just working toward. It, I mean, she's doing it on a, at a very high level, and um, and one of the things that that I thought was very interesting is that one of our meetings uh, we were discussing this, and uh, there was a question about, well, what about a patient that has you know contact lens benefits on their vision plan, and um, you know, how does that apply when there's some caps on that? And it was very interesting because she said, well, I'm not fitting a contact lens. You know, I'm, I'm reshaping the cornea. So it actually came down to how she is, um, how she is actually classified. She's right. She's, she's not just fitting a contact mm-hmm. lens. She's actually managing the reshaping of the cornea mm-hmm. in a purposeful way, as opposed to putting a contact lens on that we don't want mm-hmm. to reshape the cornea in an unpurposeful way. And so her description, I'm not describing it as well, but her description of how to manage that in terms of just your practice, practice language mm-hmm. and how you, what you call those services, I think is probably important uh, from a billing and coding standpoint. Very, very good point. Yeah, you're, you're, you're in a treatment modality, not a uh, vision correction modality. So yeah, it's, it's a medical, it would have to be considered a medical treatment, a medical cosmetic treatment is probably... Uh, you know, one of the ways to describe it. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Well, I, you know, I, I, I probably have. You know, I do kind of want to. Can I? Can I? Can we go back one more, um, one more time, just for the last few minutes? I want to. I want to explore. Um, we're going to go back to kind of billing and coding in, in 99, 99 codes for just a second. But sure. What's your take on um, on number of diagnoses and treatment? As I look at this, I tend to want to be on the slightly more conservative uh, side of it, and then there's others that I've seen that are uh, that seem to be a, a very uh, liberal interpretation of the 95 or 97 guidelines on it. So let me let me lay this out, and I want to get your perspective. So um, when you think about, so there was a a, a sheet that sort of is like a scorecard sheet that that a Wisconsin primary care physician group was evaluating the 95 or the 97, I can't remember which one it was. They were evaluating how that would be utilized to uh, arrive at different scores. And so they, they basically give, you know, one point for stable or, um, or uh, minor conditions, two points they give for worsening conditions, three points they give for new conditions with uh, no additional workup, and four points for conditions with uh, additional workup, new conditions with additional workup, and that never. Have you have you seen that chart that I'm that I'm talking about? I, I, sure I've have. heard of that. Yeah, I think I've seen that. Yes. 
And so, um, so on the one hand, the, the liberal interpretation would be to say, but, but when you look at, at the documentation guidelines, it says um, worsening conditions are more complicated than improving conditions. Right. New conditions are more complicated than established conditions. And so it doesn't really give you a whole lot of guidance. But on the one hand, in a liberal interpretation, there's some people that would just say, just tally any condition that you're managing, right? So one condition, it doesn't matter if it's improving or worsening, whatever, just tally them. Hmm. On the other hand, and, and I can see how they justify that, because um, that scorecard that I'm describing to you was used to evaluate the 95 and 97 guidelines, but it actually didn't make it into the guidelines. Hmm. Um, so, so I, I come back to that and say, well, that gives me a really simple way to score those conditions. And it actually makes it a little bit more conservative um, because if you're managing like four or five stable conditions, then you're going to be kind of capped at a, at a, at a lower level of, of number of diagnosis treatment options. So what's your interpretation of that? Um, are, are you just saying let's count the number of conditions we're managing or are you kind of scoring those conditions based on the severity or improving or worsening? You know, I, I don't use a scorecard, but I, I count the number of conditions, chronic conditions for following or uh, conditions that we're treating, and then look at the number of additional tests that need to be done and the uh, the risk that we have, uh, which then complicates it in the medical decision-making area. So, you know, I, I kind of look at low, moderate, complex. I, I like to be simple. Um, you know, and just try to put myself into that low or the moderate or the complex area of medical decision making and then uh, look at what additional tests we're doing and then arrive at a code. Um, and, yeah. you know, you, you raised it, and it you, you jogged my memory uh, on you know, what questions are asked uh, in, in asked the coding experts. One of the more common ones is, should I use a 92,000 code or should I use a 99,000 uh -huh. code? And that gets right to the crux yeah. of, you know, it, you know, we always say, well, doctor, that's your decision. We cannot, we cannot pigeonhole how you do it, but just remember that you're, um, you know, if, if there, there's, they are scored differently by uh, reviewers and, and you've got to meet your criteria and, and you you're, have enough information for the 99,000s. But the 92s, amazing that we still have those in optometry, but they're, you know, those, yeah. those are really more procedural codes as opposed to, uh, you know, medical. I still encourage medical decision-making thinking, but uh, they don't lean on medical decision-making as much as the 99,000. So um, I tell doctors to have a mix. You know, there are certain yep. uh, conditions that find themselves more appropriate to a 92,000 comprehensive or uh, intermediate, and there's medical treatment that finds itself into the 99,000s, but there's also chronic conditions that are, uh, if, they're, uh, be, if there's complications with the chronic condition, that might be more appropriate in a 99,000 coding So Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what I tell people too. That was my next question for you is, is that I do think that you should have a mix between your 92s and your 99s. And, um, and the other thing that I, I think of, maybe I'm wrong, um, but I, I think there are clinical scenarios that if you're just purely using a 92 code or, 
um, and that's all you use is intermediate and comprehensive, that while that's more straightforward, it actually there would be clinical scenarios and documentation of those of those of patient management that wouldn't be appropriate to use those codes for. So if you're using them, you actually in some scenarios you it might not be appropriate to use them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to you have to do so many um, of the elements of the exam to reach the comprehensive code, and uh, you know so many elements to uh, reach the level of the intermediate. And yeah, you could be doing yeah. uh, follow up for patients that are more appropriate at a at a, a level one, two, or level three, uh, or level one new. Uh, and you could be seeing a patient that not doing all the other procedures, but the medical decision-making and the history uh, lead you to a 99,000. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, I, I want to be respectful of your time, Doug. I, I'm, we, you know, we, you and I could probably do this for another hour or two. Um, but maybe we'll just schedule that on another one. I, I really appreciate the fact that you were able to come on today and, and discuss some of your expertise within billing and coding. And, um, and thanks for everything that you've done. I really appreciate it. Well, you're welcome, Chris. Thanks for the opportunity to, to be able to speak with you and certainly uh, enjoy uh, some of our runs with you and your dad at, uh, at meetings. So look forward to more of that. Thank you.